today we conclude our series, Yes Changes Everything. And today that, my title is Be Serious. Couldn't think of one word just to start with S, so it's actually Be Serious. We talked about being yielded and then what to expect when you say yes. And today I want to talk about being serious because so often when we say yes, we really aren't serious in our commitment to what we say we're going to do. I had a roommate years ago when I lived in Arizona. He became engaged to one of our good friends and then several months later broke off the engagement. This broke her heart. What we've discovered along the way is that wasn't the first time he'd done that. He'd actually been, been engaged five times and had broken off every one of them. He's now in his 60s and he's, he's a good-looking guy. He's, he's well-off, drives a nice car, and he's still single. And I wonder, when you asked those women and, women and said yes to marriage, did you really mean it? Because so often in our culture, we don't mean yes. You know, when we say, I'll be there by five, I'll finish the job, let's get together, I'll pray for you. So often we make comments like that just off the cuff. You know, we just made a, a pledge to, to support these families with their kids. But honestly, you know what? I'll bet we've done that so many times before that most of you don't even remember who those kids are and never once prayed for them. And so what you said really didn't mean anything. Now, I'm not trying to, trying to embarrass anybody, but I want to raise the fact that we are so good in our culture saying yes when we really don't mean it. I mean, I've done weddings where at the reception, I've looked around the room, and they paid, you know, $25 a plate for this meal, and there's, there's two or three tables that are totally empty, people that rsvp that didn't bother to show up, and that family has to pay for them. And I think, how can people say yes when they don't really mean it? I mean, it is a, a huge problem, these hasty promises that we make, too casual with our yeses. And, and one time Jesus told a story of a man who owned a vineyard. He had two sons. And he said to the sons, I'd like to go out to the vineyard to work. And the first one said, Dad, I'll do that. Never did. Second one said, I really don't feel like a dad. But later on, that boy went out and worked in the field. And Jesus said, of those two sons, which one did the father's will? It was the one who did what his father desired. Not the one who said what his father wanted to hear is the one who did what his father desired. See, the danger is that we, we ought to speak our yes out loud, but we also ought to follow it up with actions. And I fear in our culture today, it's so easy to tell people things and make promises that we don't follow through. I mean, marriage is, is a prime example. Till death do us part. Till death do us part. Or unless it gets really messy. That, 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 we don't say that. We, we, we kind of casually go through even the wedding vows. Now, I know there are some situations that, that, uh, that bring someone to a legitimate divorce, but it's so easy in our culture to make promises that we don't follow through on. And I just want to urge you that when you say yes, commit to what you're saying. James chapter 5, verse 12. The half-brother of Jesus said, but, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. He says, don't say, yeah. Don't say, yep. Just don't say, I'm going to give it a good try. I intend to. Say, no, just if you're going to do it, say yes. If you're not going to do it, just say no. Don't waffle in between. Don't, don't do a pinky promise. Don't do that poke the needle in the eye thing. I don't need any of that. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's all Jesus wants. 
But it's so easy for us to, to say to someone, yes. And I think it's because we want to feel good about ourselves. I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. And, and you need me? Yeah, I'll be there. Do I really intend to be there? Maybe not. Someone invites you to a party. We'll, we'll, we'll try our best to be there. When you know in your heart, you have no intention of going, and you'll have a good excuse on that day. But right now, it saves face to say yes. Just feels good. And maybe we, we make the other person feel good for a while until at the last minute we say, you know, something came up. Couldn't, couldn't do it. But all along we knew I had no intention of ever following through on that. God takes that real seriously. He takes our pledges so seriously. He says, just say no. If you're not going to do it, say no. I'm not, I'm not twisting your arm. I'm not trying to manipulate you. But if you're going to say yes, say yes. If you're going to say no, say no. We've been looking at the story of a guy named Nehemiah who had such a, a great response to God's work in his life that he yielded himself and said yes to God. And we saw it in the first chapter of Nehemiah, just to give you a quick update if you weren't here with us. The Jewish people were removed from their home country. They, the, the temple they worshiped God in was destroyed in Jerusalem. And they were taken as exiles into Babylon because they had rebelled against God, because they'd worshiped the gods around them and forsaken their first love. And so the, the, the Persian army then came, defeated the Babylonians, took over that entire area, and now the Jewish people are under the rule of the Persians. And one of those men in Persia works for the king, King Artaxerxes, he's a man named Nehemiah. He's a cupbearer. He's a very close associate of the king because he's the wine uh, presenter. He has to make sure the wine's not poisoned, that the food isn't doctored up. And he comes to the king with this burden. See, The temple had been rebuilt because when the king of Persia came into power, he sent the Jews back to rebuild it. God God stirred his heart to do that. It took 20-some years to rebuild the temple, but they never got the walls built around the city, the walls that would protect them from the enemies on the outside. And so when Nehemiah heard how vulnerable they were, it just broke him. He, He fell. He got on his knees. He wept. He fasted. He prayed for several weeks. And finally, he came before the Lord and said, God, give me favor. I think you're calling me to do something. Give me favor before this man, the king. And so he goes before the king, and he speaks what's on his heart. And God answers his prayer by giving him favor. The king not only gives him the freedom to go and lead the building project, the king gives him lumber, the king gives him uh, a military escort. And so when Nehemiah arrives in the city, he surveys the ruins, and then he calls the leaders together and says, this is what God's calling us to do. And they rose together and said, let's get this job done. But then the last thing I talked about last week was there was three men, a guy named Sanballat, a guy named Tobiah, and a guy named Geshem who opposed Nehemiah and the work going on. They didn't want to see Israel return as a power. And so they kept, they kept opposing their work. And we find that going into chapter 4 that they actually elevated their threats. By the time you get to the fourth chapter of Nehemiah, they're threatening violence. You guys keep building that, we're going to hurt you. And so what Nehemiah says, no, guys, we're still going to work. Strap your sword to your side. You're going to do the work with one hand and have your sword ready in the other hand. I mean, that's commitment to the job. And they get the wall built to half its height. They close up all the gaps. The wall is half its height. When you come to the section I want to read in Nehemiah chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along or follow along on the screen. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and its gates, Sanballat and Geshem said to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakephorim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. 
And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times this way and I answered them in the same manner. When you say yes to God, if you're real serious, you are going to have to say no to things that divert your attention. You'll have to say no. Every time you say yes over here, it requires you to see at least one no, if not multiple no's over here. You can't make space in your life for God to do a great work without then saying, I can't do this. Because there will be pressures and temptations calling you to get away from the thing God has called you to do. Nehemiah smells something sneaky here. And by the way, if anybody ever invites you to a place called Oh No, that's enough right there. Okay? I'm not going to the oh no. No, I'm not going there. Because he knows they want to kill him. Because if you want to stop the project, if you want to discourage the, the guys working on the wall, knock out their leader. Knock out their leader and say, and this is going to happen to you next. And Nehemiah says, no, I'm not going down. Not just because of that fear that you're going to kill me, but because I'm doing a great thing right here. God's doing a great thing right here. I'm in the middle of this move of God, and I've got to stay focused on this. When God calls you to do something for him, it is a great work that requires you, requires you to say no to some things. You are not just permitted to say no. You have to say no to some things. One of the burdens I I have as a pastor, and maybe some of you can identify, even as a mom or dad, is the endless needs. I mean, it's impossible for, for me to care individually for 1,500 people. And so if someone's in the hospital, someone has a need, someone's marriage is on the rocks, uh, there's no way physically or emotionally possible that I can be there for everyone. And my schedule gets filled, and I, I try to do as much as I can, but I, I'm not Superman, and you're not Superwoman. And even though Jesus is in us, there are limitations. We can't do everything for everyone. Even Jesus didn't. There's times where Jesus said, I, I can't do that. Or I'm not going to do that because I have to focus over here. When Mary and Martha came and said, you should have been here and healed my brother Lazarus, Jesus said, sorry, it wasn't my agenda. I'm here now to resurrect them. Sometimes when Jesus fed the 5,000, they followed him around the lake hoping he'd feed them their next meal. And Jesus says, I'm done with the meal thing. You have deeper needs we need to address. And they scattered. So sometimes we just have to say no to the people that are calling us. And it it may be good things. There may be good things that you have to give up in order to do that thing that God is calling you to do. There are times when, in our family, when our kids were young, that I said no to cable TV. I said no to sports teams on the weeknights. I I had to say no to doing some things with friends because there were family needs, there were church needs that took priority. Not that they're bad things. Sometimes that's the hardest decision is to say no to a good thing because you have a great thing that God is wanting to do. And for some of you, it's a season of time. It's a season in your life that, that you've got to focus on this thing. In this season right now when my kids are little, in this season right now while I have my, my kids coming home from, from school as teenagers, in this season right now, this is what God wants me to focus on. And therefore, I say no. I put boundaries. Boundaries are just guardrails that say, up to here, yes, over there, no. Could be time boundaries, could be relational boundaries, whatever it is. The boundaries you put, that's where you say no. I can't do that. I have a boundary. I, I, I have to protect my Fridays. 
It is the one day that I have off. I have the whole day off Friday, and it is devoted to my family. All right, we have our grandson on Friday. I, uh, my wife and I hang out on Friday. And oftentimes there are requests to do things on Fridays. And unless it's an emergency or a death in a family or something like that, I say, no, I don't check email on Fridays. It, 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 I have boundaries that I place. I need it for myself too. So you have to have boundaries. You're permitted to say no. And you're required to say no if you're going to say yes to God because of the great work he's calling you to do. Several years ago, my wife and I looked at where we were heading for retirement and realized it's not going to look good. See, I don't belong to the Social Security system. And it's all up on us when you're a self-employed minister to invest in your own retirement plan. So we didn't do a very good job of that for several decades. And we finally realized we better start doing something or we're going we're to be at the homeless shelter by the time we get in our 70s. So part of that process was we need to get out of debt. We need to stop, stop carrying credit card balances over. We need to pay our cars off. We need the only debt to be our monthly mortgage. And you know what? All, we, we, we attack those things with what Dave Ramsey would call gazelle-like intensity. Got all those things behind us. And sometimes that meant saying no to certain things. No, that's right. That is so right. I get a, that's an amen from that child back there. I'm saying no to these things. We can't do this. We can't buy this. We can't afford this right now because we're doing this great work. And when we, we, when we get through this season, maybe then we can. But you know, things look brighter for our retirement now that we've gotten the debts behind us. And I just have to acknowledge, all through that time, we were faithful to giving to God. And God had blessed us. There is like a spiritual momentum that comes behind you when you focus on doing the things that God's called you to do. And I don't know for you, it might be eliminating your debt. It might be eliminating a bad habit. It might be starting a project. It might be starting going back to school. It might be ending something, like ending a relationship ending a job. Uh, God is calling you to a great thing. Maybe it's investing in your future. Maybe it's investing in your health. Maybe you've neglected that part of it. Maybe it's investing in your emotional health. Maybe, maybe God's great thing in front of you is it's time to learn about finances biblically, about biblical parenting, about biblical marriage. It's time to do that. That is the great work. And for this season of time, you're going to adjust your schedule and say yes to this, which means you better say no to some other things to make room for this yes. And four times the men came back to Nehemiah, nagging him, come on, come down, we want to meet with you. And Nehemiah sent the same answer every time. No, I cannot come down from the wall because I'm doing a great work. When God's called you to something and you say yes, just know you're going to have to say no. And here's what happened. God gave them success. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. That is, that is so significant. In 52 days, that's less than two months, they accomplished what nobody could accomplish in 150 years. The walls were down for 150 years. Nehemiah gets there, and they work hard at it. They stay focused at it. They say, we're not going to come down. We're going to work even through the threat of being attacked. And they get it done in less than two months. And everyone else stood back saying, we can't stop them because God's with them. God's on their side. They knew there was a supernatural 
force behind them. You know what I love about Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah, the story of Ezra, the story of Esther? Is you read those books and you don't find a single great miracle. Nobody's raised from the dead. Nobody's healed of a disease. There's no, there's no miraculous food showing up anywhere. I mean, there's none of that. But here's what you find in all three of those books. This unmistakable, powerful hand of God moving among people who trust him. And frankly, to me, that is the greatest miracle of all. It is an incredible feeling when, when you're under that, that hand of God. It's like nothing's going to stop me as I stay focused on this thing that God has me to do. Got to do that. You got to say no to the things that divert your attention. Then they decide after they get the wall built, the physical wall, they got some spiritual issues to address. So in chapter 9, it says, On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Not the whole earth, by the way. <clears throat> Just some dirt. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of, their, of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. We'll be done in about 20 minutes here. They stood and confessed their sins for at least three hours. And they worshiped the Lord and listened to his word for at least three hours. Why do they do all this? When you're serious about your yes to God, you choose spiritual goals over physical appetites. You choose spiritual goals over physical appetites. When you really get serious with God, you start to say, you know what? The things of my spirit matter more than the things of the body. I can afford, for example, I need to have a quiet time with the Lord, so I need to get up 15 minutes earlier every day. And even though the body says, oh, so comfortable here, just lay there in bed, I am going to pull myself out of this bed <clears throat> so I can have this quiet time with the Lord. It's, it's denying the comforts and the pleasures of life for a greater spiritual need. So one of those pleasures is sleep. You know what another pleasure is? Maybe my favorite, food. Yeah. Food. And so here's what they did. We're going to fast. We're going to get humble before the Lord. We're actually going to put dirt on our, on our foreheads, probably to remind them that's what we came from. That's all we are. Dust in the wind. That's all we are. And yet God, God is willing to be gracious and forgive us if we humble ourselves before him. Really what they're trying to do is repair the damages of all that had happened years before when their ancestors rebelled against God, and it, which led to their captivity. They say, God, we are so sorry for what we've done. If you read the ninth chapter of Nehemiah, you see their story of what they'd done. And, and they're broken before the Lord, and they show it through their, their fasting. I just want to point out something that we forget. You are not a physical body with the Spirit. You're a spiritual body. You're, you're a spiritual body with the shell. The most important part of you is what's on the inside, not the outside. You know how I know that? Because the outside is going to die and get discarded. The inside is going to remain. And yet we respond to the cries of the physical much more than the cries of the spirit. Three times a day, routinely, you and I will go sit and eat food. And yet we neglect what's going on in our spirit because we aren't tuned into it. What fasting does 
is, is tune you into your spirit in a way that you do externally with your appetite for food. What is fasting? It's, it's one letter short of feasting, and it's, and it's the exact opposite of feasting. Instead of eating everything, I eat nothing. I may drink water, I might drink fluids, but I'm not going to eat any food for a period of time. It could be a meal, could be a whole day, could be several days, could be weeks. But, but I'm going to fast from food. I'm going to deny myself the pleasure of food because I have this insatiable hunger to hear from God or to have his power in my life or to, to have wisdom from him or to have strength from him or to have his favor in my life more than I want food. God, more than that pizza for lunch, I need you in my life. God, more than, more than that bowl of ice cream and that, that piece of warm apple pie, as good as that sounds, I'm willing to say no to that because I want your favor. I just want to ask you, have you ever craved for something from God more than food? Because if you do, and if you have, you've probably fasted. The reason most Christians never fast is because they don't crave for that. And I just want to... Um, ma- I just want to make an argument that there are things in your life or there are people in your life worth praying over to such a degree that you say this is worth fasting over. See, Jesus said one time to his disciples, they're trying to cast this demon out of a boy and it wasn't working. They, they kept, in Jesus' name, and we're praying over him and nothing's happening. And Jesus says, oh, that kind, it only comes out through prayer and fasting. If you look through the Bible Prayer, or excuse me, fasting is always associated with prayer. It's not like a political thing. We're just going to go without food to see how long we can do it. No. Or to raise awareness about something. We fast because we hunger for God. So what do you do when you you fast? In in place of eating meals, you spend time in prayer. You spend time focused. You can go through the Bible from Moses when he went up to get the Ten Commandments. He spent 40 days fasting. When Jesus started his journey uh, his ministry, 40 days fasting in the wilderness. We find the church leaders coming together to fast and pray over Saul and Barnabas before they sent them off on a mission. We find Esther having a fast before she goes before the king to ask the king for grace for the Jewish people. We find Ezra uh, fasting with the people before the Lord for safe travel mercies as they're carrying gold and silver from Persia all the way to Jerusalem. We, we find actually the king, king Cyrus Excuse me, King Darius, who was king of Persia. He's not even a believer. He fasts and prays because he was tricked into making an edict that caused Daniel to get thrown in the lion's den. And so he decided to appeal to Daniel's God to protect him. And his prayers were answered. Only people who are serious in their faith would bother fasting. Because fasting is a way that somehow gets God's attention on us. Now, I know people fast, will say, I, I fast for other things. I, I fast from football. I, I fast from social media. I, I, I fast from these things. But biblically, the only fast I see is fasting from food. In one occasion, the New Testament, where couples would fast from sexual activity to work through some issues they have. But typically, it's food. And the, and the reason I think it is because Food is a natural, God-given craving. God gave you the desire for food. He didn't give you the desire for football and social media. He gave you the desire for food. And, and you have to have food to live. So in a sense, when you fast, your body goes through a process that reminds you that, 
I mean, if, frankly, if you skip a meal for a couple days, you'll think, I'm dying! Well, not, not really. Most of us have enough extra to carry us through for several days. It's not like we're, we're you know, in a country where food is lean and then we're fasting. No, we're, we're just, we've got extra to fast for. So we fast, but I'll just tell you this. When, when you fast, if you've ever fasted, the first couple days are the hardest because you are so conditioned to eating and your body starts craving, saying, hey, reminder, reminder, starts cramping a little bit. I, I get a headache often, sometimes a very strong headache the first day or two. But you know what? After about the third day, it's like this, the heavens open. It's like it's clear. Like I feel, I feel energy. I feel strong. I feel healthier. And I feel very attentive in my prayers to God. And I want to just urge you that there are things in your life worth fasting over. There really are. And maybe you would experience a breakthrough if you really got serious in your prayers by adding fasting to it. To spiritual goals over physical needs. At the end of that time of uh, prayer and fasting, they made a commitment. It says, because of all this, because of all this repentance, all this has gone on, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. What they did is they entered into a, a covenant with God, and they're so serious about it that they made it very clear what they were committing to, and they put their names on it. If you're serious, you do that. You clarify your promise. You say, I'm so committed to it, I'm willing to put my name on that thing. I'm willing to sign it. I didn't know how valuable my signature was or how popular it was until we bought a house, and then I had endless pages <laughs> of signing documents. And so I feel like uh, this must be how the, how the superstars feel when they're signing their fans' autographs. That my signature on those documents means a lot. And sometimes, even for us as a church, we have like a membership class. At the end of the membership class, if you commit to the church, you enter a covenant. Here's what the church will do for you, and here's what you'd commit to for the church. And then you sign your name on it because there's, a, there's value attached to your name. When you sign your name to it, it is saying, my character, my integrity is on that. My yes means yes. I mean it. You know, you go back in history when the Declaration of Independence was formed, it was very clear that they wanted to break from the domination from England. At the end of that finely crafted document was written these words, for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. You know, when these men signed the Declaration of Independence, the 56 men who did, every single one of them knew, if we are captured, they will execute us. And it is worth the risk. Some of them were captured and tortured. Some of them died in, on the battlefield. One guy named John Hart. I've got to tell you just a little bit about him because you probably don't know him. He was a farmer from New Jersey. He signed his name on the Declaration of Independence. He was driven away from the bedside of his sick wife. And he ended up spending a year hiding in the forest and in caves. When he finally came back home, he found out that his farm and mill had been destroyed, his wife had died, and his kids had been scattered. He never saw his family ever again. When they put their name on that line, it meant something. Let your yes be yes. 
And so these guys crafted this document and said, you know, we're covenanting with God over the things that God wants us to do. And so we don't, won't have time to read all these scriptures, but if you go into the 10th chapter, they commit to three things. I'll just summarize them with this. First, they said, we will not give our children to marry foreigners. It wasn't that God was opposed to foreigners, but God was opposed to the worship of the foreigners. Because those that were supposed to be driven out of the promised land were never fully driven out. So the Ammonites and the Hittites and all these groups still existed. And they still worshipped the Baals and the Ashtaroths and their foreign gods. And it seemed like every time Israel got too close to them, they switched allegiance from the true God to the false gods. That's what got them in trouble in the first place. And so they said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're only going to marry those that worship Yahweh. Secondly, they said, we are going to support the work of the temple. Through our faithful gifts, we're going to make sure that temple worship continues. We're going to support the work of the Levites so they don't have to work elsewhere. They can devote themselves to the sacrifices and the reading of the laws and the things that need to be done in the temple. And third, we will honor the Sabbath day. We'll not be greedy and work seven days a week. We will honor the Sabbath day as a day of rest. And so they made these commitments in writing, in a covenant to God, and then they signed it. Seems real powerful and real good. But saying you promise one thing and following through, as I said, is a whole nother issue. Because when we come to the end of the book, we find out something very disturbing. We find out that it's so important that if you're going to say yes to God, you need to stay the course. You need to stay the course when you're tempted to compromise. Stay the course when you're tempted to compromise. See, these people had made these promises to God. And I think they meant them well. There has to be something more than good intentions to fulfilling promises. Nehemiah had uh, left Persia to go work on the building project. He had given the king a time when he would return to his job as cupbearer. So he did it, turns, goes back to Persia, works for King, Ar- king Artaxerxes. Twelve years later, he returns to Jerusalem. You know what he finds? First thing he finds was Tobiah. Tobiah is one of the ones that opposed him. Tobiah was an Ammonite. The Ammonites were the, were the constant enemy of the Israelites. When he comes back, he finds out that, that, that Tobiah has been given a room in the temple. They've actually moved out the grain and some of the stuff they use for the sacrifices and said, here, you can have a place because he has a relative that's on the inside. Nehemiah cannot believe it. He cannot believe that, that, that they've welcomed this foreigner who worships a foreign god into the very temple of God. Nehemiah livid. It says he goes in there, he starts throwing furniture out. He just starts pitching it. He's angry. It's like Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. He throws it all out. He says, this was for the grain. This was for the stuff needed for the temple work. And then he walks around and he says, I cannot believe what I see. I want to read to you what he finds. First, chapter 13, verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. The guys that they said they were going to support so they could do the work of the temple had to go back in the fields to support themselves, could no longer focus on the work of the temple. They broke a promise. That wasn't the only one. It says in verse 17 and 18, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. They were working on the Sabbath. They were using it for a day of marketing. He says, you guys promised you weren't going to do that. And then the worst thing, 
Verse 23, in those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. He said, you guys, Nehemiah is speechless. He, can't, he just can't believe it. He said, the very things we were, we were repenting on. Remember that whole day we repented of those very things? You're now doing those things you said you didn't want to do again. How do you expect to be blessed by God? and not taken away in captivity all over again. As a side note, is there any wonder why, why Israel, spiritual Israels, never come together again? See, here's, here's what I see happening. And I, if I could be very frank with you, in our American culture, we are so influenced by the culture, just like the Israelites were, that my fear is this. We will compromise our faith and blend in so much with the culture that it won't be clear who really are the ones devoted to their God. You know, I, I, look, at, I look at how we talk even about church sometimes. Like, you know, what I like best about church is the music. What I like best about church is the teaching. What I like about church is this program. We talk a lot about those things with outsiders or maybe even in our circles, Shouldn't we be talking about God? Shouldn't we be talking about how great the God is that they worship? I I hear people say, like, I don't need to go to church. Well, you don't need to go to church, but you need to worship God. Remember the very first commandment God gave? He he prefaced it this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before you. I'm the God who rescued you. I'm the God who heard you when you cried. I'm the God who picked you out of the pit. I'm the God who did that. Am I asking too much to be your only God? Am I asking too much? And yet, yet we allow the gods of the culture to influence us and to pull us away. And I know this because I want to ask you some questions. I want you just to answer them honestly in your own heart. I'm willing to miss worship for blank. What would you be willing to miss worship over? Tickets to a ball game? Golf tournament? Early morning football game? Late night on Saturday? What what is it? What would you be willing to stand before God and say, I was willing to miss worshiping you over this thing? I'm, I'm more committed to my payments to blank than my giving to God's work. I'm more committed to internet, a cell phone, cable, mortgage. What, what is it? I'm more committed to that than I am to regular giving to God's work. I, I'm more excited uh, about what's happening there in that place than I am about what's happening in God's kingdom. What gets you excited? What gets you most excited? Is it something that's totally detached from the Lord? I'm more eager to hear so-and-so's voice than the voice of the Lord. I'm more committed to hearing Rush Limbaugh's voice or that, that musician more than the Lord's voice. Here's, here's the last one. I, I talk more about blank than I do about Jesus. 
Now, you may think I'm being a little extreme. You may think, Pastor, you're saying it all has to be about God, and everything has to be about God. He has to be in the middle and the biggest thing about everything, and that's exactly what I'm saying. Because Jesus said, He's the Lord your God, He's the one who saved you. Love Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind all your strength. No flimsiness in there. No wiggle room in there. It's total devotion to me. I need to be in your life. I need to be central in your life. And friends, too many of us say, are, are saying yeah to God, not yes. Not a clear, powerful yes, God. Yes. You are first. You are best. You are worthy of worship. Because here's what Jesus did for us. Paul was describing his commitment to us. When God says, son, I want you to go to die on that cross for me, Paul says, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to the glory of God. Here's what I've discovered about God, and I see this all through Scripture. I've seen it in my life. When you are for God, when you trust God, he is strong for you. He is good to you. He will fight for you. But if you play games with God and are, and are wishy-washy with your yes, when you take God as, as, as a part of your life, see, God doesn't, God doesn't want to be a part of your life. God doesn't even want to be a priority of your life. He wants to be the passion of your life. If he's anything less than that, I don't think you understand what Jesus did for you. And you know what? The good thing we have is Every Sunday we come together to humble ourselves before the Lord, to not forget what Jesus did for us. That's why we take communion. But also to recommit ourselves. I fail. I I let God down. Sometimes my yes isn't a great yes. But you know what? Every Sunday when I come back here is a chance for me to repent and say, God, I want to get back. I want to recenter my life. I want to get it back to where it should be.